college student at Moody Bible Institute. And one of the very unique things that happens every week is uh, three times a week, we have different speakers that pour into our lives. Until this morning, we have the opportunity uh, to hear from a guest speaker. And one of the things that you get out of that is a different perspective, and I value that greatly. And so this morning, we have Greg Arthur from Duneland Community Church that's going to be speaking uh, to us this morning. And could we give him a real-life welcome, please? It is great to be with you this morning. Uh, Over the last uh, decade plus, as I've pastored over in Chesterton, uh, I've come to deeply love and appreciate this church and the opportunities we've had to do ministry together. And it's one of the great things about being part of the Nazarene denomination uh, is that everywhere I go and I spend time with Nazarenes, it feels like being with extended family. Uh, So just uh, greatly appreciative of that. Um, And uh, as uh, someone who dearly loves your pastor, uh, let me thank you uh, for allowing him this time of sabbatical. Um, This may be something that's new for you or you may have not have encountered before with a pastor. Um, uh, Two years ago, I I had a three-month sabbatical for my church, um, and it was one of the most healing, uh, wonderful experiences of my life. Um, Ministry is often uh, what I describe it as, when you're in pastoral ministry, basically what you have to do is learn to endure pain better than other people. It's the death of a thousand paper cuts. And it is hard to describe, if you haven't uh, lived in this position, just quite what the burden of trying to lead people spiritually, uh, what it feels like in your life. So you are doing a a great act of love for your pastor and loving him and his family this way. Uh, So as someone who loves Scott dearly, uh, let me just thank you for that. Uh, And know that he's going to come back refreshed and renewed and with a different sense of what God uh, is doing in his life, uh, and you will benefit greatly from it. Uh, But it's an act of love, so thank you. Thank you for that. So this morning we're going to be in the book of Exodus, uh, and we're going to be looking at some unlikely heroes uh, from Exodus chapter 1. But before we can get into their story, it's helpful for us to think about the book of Exodus and why it was written. Um, you know, when we get the books of the Bible, we sort of, we get this collection of this library of all these different 66 books that we get together as the Bible, and we don't really think about often about why they were written down or why they were put together. But they weren't written down in real time most of the time. They weren't, uh, they weren't giving a live stream of what God was doing. No, these were think, books that were put together and written afterwards for a purpose. It was to teach people something specific. And the book of Exodus in particular was written to help shape the people of Israel in an understanding of who they were and who their God is. Now, this was not written for the people who actually lived through the Exodus, because they knew what happened. No, this was written for their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren and the descendants that would come after them, those who were never slaves in Egypt, so that they, even as they wandered in the wilderness or they tried to settle into the, new, into the promised land, they would understand who they were and they would be able to uh, know who their God is. And so as we're beginning to hear the story from Exodus 1 this morning, let's just be reminded that this is an intentionally written book given to the people of God to remind them who God is. Uh, and if you've got the sermon notes there and you're going to follow along, we're going to be talking about this. And the first thing we sort of learn from this is an important thing for us to keep in mind as we go through this story is that Exodus is a reminder to us that God is a God of the poor and the oppressed. God has always been a God of the people at the margins. 
the broken people, the powerless people. And in fact, Scripture, when you look through it from beginning to end, wasn't written by the powerful. It wasn't written by the people in charge. It was written by the people who lived under empires, the people who were being crushed by forces, the people who were at the margins, the people who were criticizing uh, what was going on in the world, the people who were looking and lamenting because of their suffering. And it's important for us to remember that so that as we hear the, the stories, we know who they were for and who they were by within that. So uh, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 1 this morning, starting in verse 6, and uh, hearing the story of the people of God in the Exodus. Now Joseph and all of his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were increasingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. And worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. And in all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Pua, When you were helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that that baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? And the midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all of his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. So in this story now, we, we were reminded at the very beginning of how it is the people ended up in Egypt to begin with. How was it that God's people were there? Well, God had placed the Israelites into Egypt as a way of protecting them and preserving the plan that he had for them. This plan that went all the way back to Abraham when God met with Abraham and he called him to leave his land and said, Abram, go go out, leave your family, leave your home, and I am going to bless you. And I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. And in fact, it's going to be such a great nation that it will in fact be a blessing to all people, to all nations. And so uh, time came and his descendants went along and eventually there was a, they knew there was a famine coming to the land and God, through the, lots of different ways, placed Joseph in Egypt. You remember Joseph in his Technicolor dream coat, right? Donny Osmond, that sort of thing. Um, so Joseph is in Egypt, and he's there, right? All so that God can preserve the people, because there's going to be a great famine. And so Joseph is in a position of power, and he helps Egypt survive the famine first, and then secondly, brings his whole family to Egypt so they can survive the famine as well. So this is how the Israelites get to Egypt, right? Joseph and the blessings of God. And after they got there, they settled into this land called Goshen. It's down on the side there of Egypt. Um, And they became shepherds and and herders. And this is uh, where they began to thrive. This became the family business. 
Well, over time, they, they flourished and they prospered. This was part of God's plan for them. It was for them to grow and become numerous, and they began to spread across the land. Well, as they did that, regimes changed. The Pharaoh that honored Joseph and was thankful for his work and the people who knew him left, and were, they were gone. And new people came into power. They didn't care about Joseph. They didn't care what sort of arrangements had been made. All they did is they looked at their land, and they saw that they had foreigners living in their land, and there was a lot of them. And they were afraid. And so Pharaoh came up with this plan, this plan of oppressing the people of God. This plan to, to, to no longer allow them to prosper. Because he said, listen, if uh, we go to war, if other enemies come against us, what's to keep these people, there's so many of them, they're living in our land, what's to keep them from just turning against us? From becoming our enemies? We will have enemies inside of our borders. No, we have to, we have to strip them of power. We have to remove everything from them so that they won't be a threat to us. And so the Israelites now go from being shepherds and, and herders into, into prospering into slave labor. And they're forced to go build these military cities out on the, out on the edge of the empire where, the, where, where they'll be able to protect Egypt. All of this was so they wouldn't be a threat anymore. It was intentionally cruel. And the people suffered greatly. That's listed several times. They suffered greatly. And so as we're hearing this story, imagine now you are... Um, a child wandering the wilderness, and you're hearing this story about who you are and about who your God is, and you're, you're confused a little bit about how uh, God had allowed you to go to Egypt, and then all of these terrible things happened there. And you're beginning to wonder why. Why would God allow these things to happen? But this is a really important thing for the Israelites to understand about who God was and what God was doing and about their life, and also something that we can really learn from, from the story, which is this. The blessing and the plan of God brought the Israelites into conflict with the empire. The blessings and the plan of God brought the Israelites into conflict with the empire. You see, sometimes we're under this delusion that if we follow God and just do all the good things of God and God blesses us, then that means we get to live the dream. Nothing bad's going to happen to us. Life is going to be smooth sailing and we're going to get everything we want. But that's not the story of the people of God. The people of God are not people who, whose life is free from suffering and hardship. No. As a matter of fact, the more we live into the plan of God and experience the blessings of God, the more we will find that our lives are directly in conflict with the empires of this world. Why? Because when Christ is your king, when God is your king, that is a threat to all the other kings in the world. When you're part of the kingdom of God, when you're part of God's work in the world, it brings you into conflict with all of the other kingdoms in this world. And it was so important for the people of Israel to know this in the beginning, for them to understand that, that God had a plan for them, and he was blessing them, and yet there was still going to be suffering in the midst of it. As a matter of fact, it became uh, rather counterintuitive, because the more Pharaoh oppressed the people, and the more they suffered, the more God blessed them, and they kept increasing within this. And we see this conflict happening between what God is trying to do, and what the king and the empires of this world often do. 
And here in Exodus 1, we do get this great example of um, understanding how empires work. See, if we're going to be the people of God and we're going to live our life following God, we're going to come in conflict with empires in this world. We're going to come in conflict with powers at work in this world, with people who want to be king instead of Jesus. And so it's important for us to understand how empires work and how they maintain power in, within this. And there are three things that, they, that the Pharaoh does here that happen over and over again and have happened throughout all of history, right? These are, this is how empires maintain their power. The first is that fear is tactic number one. Empires rule by fear. They want you to be afraid of them, and they want you to think they're necessary because you're afraid of somebody else. There's always an enemy in an empire. There's always an enemy. And so empires rule by fear. They can keep you afraid of them, and they can keep you afraid of someone else. They can maintain power, right? which is exactly what Pharaoh does here. The second part is that the, the easiest way to maintain fear is to dehumanize the other, to choose a people and to make them the enemy. And when you do that, you begin to dehumanize them. You turn them uh, not into fully-fledged people, but into something else. You, you, you develop a name for them, a category for them. They're no longer individual people. They're just a people. And you dehumanize them this way so that then it's easy to, to just blame them for everything and to cause them fear, right? Pharaoh did this very well with the Israelites, right? If the Israelites are prospering, you're not going to have enough. If the Israelites become numerous, they will turn against you. They will steal your homes from you. They will, they will run, become our enemies, and take over the land. Pharaoh was incredibly good at this. And then the final part of that is, if you get the people afraid, and if you get them to dehumanize other people, well, then you can justify inhumane treatment of the powerless. You can, you can justify an inhumane treatment of these other people. You can get people to go along with things that otherwise they wouldn't. But because they're afraid and because they're, they have someone to blame, it's okay to treat them this way. And this is what Pharaoh did with the people of Israel. And this is something that we've seen repeated over and over and over again in our world. This is how empires work. It doesn't take us very long to think of some examples of this. Right? Blaming the Jews for what's wrong in the world has never stopped. Anti-Semitism is still rampant in this world. It's rampant in the Middle East. It's been rampant uh, throughout the centuries. It's been rampant, especially amongst different Christian groups over the years. In Germany, we saw the, the horrors of this in the 20th century, right? With the, with the rise of white nationalism and Aryanism and the destruction and the genocide against Jewish people. Why? Because they, they were the enemy. They were to be feared. They were less than human and it was okay to eliminate them. It was okay for everyday people bought into inhumane treatment of others. We've seen this quite often throughout history with colonies. Uh, whenever there was a, a one nation that colonized another, and then uh, what they did with the indigenous people. Uh, if you know anything about it, the history of colonization in Africa, it's uh, filled with story after story of empires functioning this way. Um, example that might be most familiar to many of us is in South Africa with the Dutch where they literally had to set up a system wherein the, the indigenous people, the Africans there, were set aside and kept separate from all of the power and all of the white people in every way possible through apartheid. I mean, sadly, this is even a history that we know in our own country. 
with the treatment of Native Americans when they were treated as something less than human, so it was okay to drive them off their land and to slaughter them, to push them out to make room for the people that mattered. With our history of slavery and a willingness to live in that world where that was okay, it was okay to treat them that way because they were something less than human. Even during World War II when the Japanese, all of a sudden now we had the Japanese were our enemy and we had enemies inside of our borders. So what did we need to do? We needed to put them in concentration camps and hide them away so that they wouldn't rise up against us as enemies within our border. See, this is just the way empires work. It worked the same way thousands and thousands of years ago with Israel as it does today. And what the people of Israel discovered was that being the people of God and receiving the blessings of God did not keep them from living in conflict with these empires. In fact, it moved them directly into conflict with empires that wanted to function this way. Why? Because when God is king and you're living in his kingdom, you're always going to come in conflict with other kings in the kingdoms of this world. And so as we move into the story then, we find that Pharaoh um, is a little bit perturbed that his process of making enemies didn't work as well as he wanted to. He kept oppressing the Israelites, and yet God kept blessing them. He kept trying to crush them and keep them from spreading out the land, and yet God kept making them more and more numerous in the land. So he had to move to even more inhumane treatments. So he got the Hebrew midwives together, Shipra and Pua, right? Those are two names that I don't know. Nobody ever remembers these names. These are names we need to remember. Shipra and Pua. Let's try those together. Shipra and Pua, right? Pua, sort of fun to say. Pua, right? It's good. These are great names. Um, So he gets them together and says, listen, uh, when the Hebrew midwives give birth, if they have a baby boy, just kill the baby boy. This is a long-term systemic way of trying to um, keep the Israelites down, to make them weaker. And they're put in this hard position of whether or not they will obey the law of the land, whether or not they will follow the king, who's the most powerful man they've ever met, whether or not they will listen to that and carry out these atrocities, or they will do something different. Now, to us, that seems like an easy choice. How could you kill babies? How could you possibly go along with this? But to dismiss that as an easy choice would be, would be to overlook the power that existed in the empire and the, the culture of fear and hatred that ruled the day. They were, in fact, making a choice probably between their own lives and the lives of these children. But the scripture tells us that they were not people who feared Pharaoh and his power, or they were not people that feared the Israelites. They were a people that feared God. And when they use the word fear here, it's used in a different way. It doesn't mean they were afraid of God. It means that they had awe and respect and trust in God. That they lived surrendered to God. And so when the Pharaoh asked them to do something that they knew was wrong, they trusted in God instead. Now, they came up with a great excuse. Those Hebrew women, I mean, they're some women, right? They just give birth too quickly, sorry. We just can't get there in time. Right? And only a man would ever buy that excuse. Right? Like Pharaoh's like, well, I guess if that's how it's going to work. All right? And so they, they come up with this excuse, but they know they're, they're subverting. They're, they're working against what Pharaoh wants. They're putting themselves in a position of danger. And yet, they believe and they trust in their God. 
and in the right thing, even as they're living in conflict with the king. And so uh, all of this happens, and Pharaoh is uh, distraught that this has occurred, and then he decrees across the land, right? Not just for these Hebrew midwives, but he makes it the law of the land. Throw the baby boys in in the Nile. The law of the land, finally, let's take it the last step, full genocide. There won't be another generation of Hebrew men. Get rid of them all. And so as you're, if you're a child and you're hearing this, and you're wandering the wilderness, and you've heard these stories for the first time, um, you're beginning to realize, wait, the only reason I'm alive, that my parents were alive, that my grandparents were alive is because these women refused to obey the law of the land. Because they loved God more than they feared Pharaoh. They were alive because of the work of these women. So, of course, they know their names. Of course, in Exodus 1, the only people that are named, in all of Exodus, Pharaoh was never named. It's just his title. Even though he was the most famous person in the world and commanded this big empire, we don't even know what Pharaoh this was because that didn't matter. The leaders of Israel aren't named, aside from Moses and a couple of his friends. Everybody else are, are these anonymous characters in the story, but not Shipra and Puah. No, they're heroes. They're heroes because when they came into conflict with the empire, they refused, absolutely refused, to participate in the dehumanization and the genocide and the slaughter. They refused to fear Pharaoh and to buy into his campaign of fear. Instead, they loved God. And so as we think about our own lives and the fact that, that like the children of Israel and like Shipra and Pua, if Jesus is king of our life, if we follow God, if we are part of the kingdom of God, we will always be in conflict with the kingdoms of this world. Then in their example, we find um, how we should live. We find our own blueprint for how we should live as the children of God when the world asks us to buy into fear and dehumanization of others. And this is what we see in the life of Jesus. So let's think about this together and some of the things that Shipra and Pua uh, teach us about this that we then see lived out in the life of Jesus when the blessings and the plan of God bring us into conflict with the empire. How should we live? What do we do? Well, the first part of this is we have to be able to identify and refuse to abide by the dehumanization of anyone. We have to be able to see it when when the world is trying to tell you that other people are worth less than you are. We have to be able to identify that and refuse to buy into it. I mean, this is what Jesus did each and every day of his life as he walked about carrying out his ministry. He specifically went to all of the people that the religious people and the government people and all all of the communities had decided were worth less, and he gave them value. It was a culture where if you were sick, you were being punished. If you were suffering, it was your fault. If you were a woman, you mattered less. If you were of mixed race, you were an abomination. And what did Jesus do? He walked around and spent time with all of these people that everyone else said didn't matter and didn't have great value. And he loved them. He touched the untouchable, he loved the unlovable, and he redeemed and restored them. Why? Because Jesus refused to abide by anybody being dehumanized. 
Every person is made in the image of God. And Jesus came to save all people. All people to be reconciled to God through him. And so he didn't care what society said or what the government said or what the religious people said about who had value and who didn't. No, he loved them all. This is what we see in their example. So the second choice we make within that is to choose love over fear. To choose love over fear. If we are going to come in conflict with the empires of this world, we are going to come in conflict with being told who we should be afraid of. But if our fear is in the Lord, if our love and trust is in God, we will live a different sort of life. Uh, John describes it this way. John says, perfect love, complete love, whole love, a transforming love, casts out all the fear from our life. And I like to think about that as displaces. So like, if we're filled up with fear, the more love we're filled up with, the less room there is for fear to be in our life and to be the thing that motivates us with how to live. And what Christ came to do is to set us free from fear and to fill us with such an abiding love and a presence of God that we would be freed to then go and love the world as he loves the world. And so we have to continually make the choice of love over fear. Because if we fear, especially if we fear others, we will not love as Christ loves. The two are incompatible. Christ calls us, he frees us out of that life into a different sort of life. Third part we see from them within this is the call to subvert evil through extravagant acts of love. Right? Shipra and Pua took an active, it wasn't just that they were non-participants, they were saving lives. They put themselves into a position where their lives could possibly uh, be harmed, but they chose to actively seek out and subvert evil as they encountered it in the empire. Jesus did this all the time. Jesus was not merely a passive prophet walking around and saying, oh, you guys should just love each other. He went and did things that were against the law over and over again. He did this when he healed people on the Sabbath. He did this when he touched the untouchable. He did this when he went and spoke with a woman, and a sinful woman at that. He did this when he held uh, dinner and he gathered with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. Over and over again, Jesus actively subverted evil in every way he could. Why? Because he was filled with love and not fear. He was not afraid that if he spent time with certain people, it would dirty him or soil him. No, he, he came to bring them love and transformation. So what does it look like for us to have lives like Shipra and Pua? What does it look like for us to have these sort of, these lives, right, that people would look at and want to share and make sense of? I got a glimpse of this in my own life back about 12 years ago. I had the chance to travel with a group of pastors and church leaders um, for about two weeks in Russia. Now, growing up as a kid in, uh, during the Cold War, there were, it was, the world was simpler. We just, had one Rus- we just had one enemy, and it was the commies, right? It was the Reds. It was the Russians. Uh, everything that, if anything bad happened, it was because the Russians had invaded, right? If you were a child who grew up in the 80s, Red Dawn was your nightmare, and they were, they were going to parachute in at any time, or nuclear holocaust was coming. And so as a kid, the Russians were the only enemies I ever really thought about, right? They were the people who were coming to get us. And I never imagined any scenario of my life where I would be standing in Red Square in Moscow other than, of course, working for the CIA and being a spy, right? Which was a good possibility when I was a kid. I just really thought that was, there was a good chance that would happen. But so I found myself in Russia traveling with all these pastors, and we were specifically going to work in orphanages, 
So in Russia, there are some interesting systems set up. So they have, um, we don't really have many orphanages in the U.S. anymore. Mainly we have the foster care system, uh, and that's how we, we deal with uh, children who don't have homes. But in Russia, they still have institutions that they, kids get sent to. Um, and um, the vast majority of children in these institutions are, um, have a label to them, and it's oligraphenic. And that means small-brained. Um, and what that means is that um, they are children who have suffered fetal alcohol syndrome. So when they were in the uterus, uh, they were uh, poisoned by alcohol, and their brains developed improperly. And so there's this classification of people in Russia, oligraphenic, and um, many of these children that are born this way are given over to the state to deal with. Two-thirds of the children in these orphanages, in fact, have a living relative or a parent, but they've been given up anyways. They're social orphans. And so I was with these group of pastors, and we traveled around the country um, with this ministry that helped partner churches with these orphanages, helping to uh, bring good news there, helping to improve the quality of their care, uh, bringing discipleship and, and, and all sorts of work into these orphanages, because the reality is kids who grew up in these orphanages grow up without hope and with a deep sense of being worthless. The, the, when children graduate out of them and are left on their own, um, it was something like over 50% suicide rate within five or six years. Uh, alcohol use, drug use, crim crime was off the charts. Um, uh, HIV rates were extraordinarily high. Th these children were given a death sentence by being attached to this name and this category and being shipped off this way. And so I was part of a group of pastors that went to go see what it looked like to be good news to them. And as we traveled around, it was incredible to just go spend time with these kids and get to hear some of their stories and get to know them. And I didn't speak any Russian except for a couple of phrases, badly yelled. Um, but, they, but we just started building relationships. I remember one in particular uh, orphanage we went to, it was more like a, a family home. Uh, and one of the other guys and I were there, and there was about nine little boys. And we were spending time with them after dinner, and the thought occurred to me, what do these boys not have in their life? What does good news look like for these little boys? And I said, well, they just don't have a dad to play with. Right? I've got a son. He wants to wrestle. Right? That's his love language. He wants to wrestle. Let's go wrestle, Dad. And I started thinking, well, well how, do we, how do we just play with these guys? And I didn't speak any Russian, and the translator wasn't there. And so I said, asked the one lady, I said, uh, I saw they had this giant stuffed crocodile. And I said, what's the Russian word for crocodile? And she's like, crocodile. And I said, ah, I'll remember that one. And I grabbed the crocodile, and I started to chase the children. Ah, crocodile, crocodile, right? And I started chasing them around everywhere. And it was it. It was on, pandemonium, and little boys flying off of couches and tackling us and going. And it was two or three hours of being good news because they were seen and valued and loved. And as we were leaving that orphanage that night, uh, one of the translators who was with us said, um, I don't know why you people are here. I don't know why you want to love these children. I don't understand it but I think you might be the best people I've ever met. And in her mind, uh, this action, this subversive loving of the enemy traveling across the world just to wrestle on the ground and, and be silly with kids and, and to make sure that they were loved and taken care of was so outside of anything she'd ever seen or experienced that she had no category for it. And see, that's what it looks like to be the people of God. That's what it looks like to be a people who love God more than they fear the other. That's what it feels like to be a people who live in the kingdom of God instead of 
surrendering to and serving the kingdoms of this world. Is that when we come into conflict with, the, conflict with those kingdoms, we choose love. We choose love over fear every time. And we learn to rehumanize people and see their value rather than fearing them and dehumanizing them. And so the question for us this morning, the question we have to live with then is, where are we in conflict as the people of God? Where is our world calling us to fear instead of love? Where are we being called to dehumanize and participate in the dehumanization of the other? And what, it would look, what would it look like for us to faithfully trust in God and to choose love over fear? Let's pray together. Jesus, we declare that you are Lord. You are Lord over all things. And yet we, we often default to making something else Lord. Our own desires, our, our own desire for comfort. We make fear our Lord. We make scarcity our Lord instead of abundance. But we see in the story of these women the incredible example of what can be if we will surrender ourselves and be your people if we choose your kingdom over the kingdoms of this world. And so we ask that you would so fill us with love that you would displace all the fear, that you would drive out of our life the ability to, to stand it when others are dehumanized. But instead, you would give us the courage to go into all the world and find those who are broken and forgotten, pushed to the margins and being oppressed, and to go and love them because you are the God of the poor and the oppressed. May we learn to love the world as you love the world. Praise in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand to receive this blessing? Christ has promised that as we go into the world, everywhere we go, he will be with us. So may you go forward into the world and join with the reconciling work of Christ and be good news for all people and go forward with the blessings of God, our Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.